I will invite you to take your copy of God's Word and let's look together in Acts chapter 20. We all know that the Bible reminds us in Psalm 119, the ESV in Psalm 119.11 puts it this way, Thy word have I stored in my heart that I may not sin against God. And then later on in Psalm 119, it says, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, light unto my path. We hear words from Joshua 1 verse 8. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night, that you may observe to do all that is written therein. Then you shall make your way prosperous and have good. The only verse in the entire Bible that speaks of success is Joshua 1.8. And it's connected to the Word of God. That should be in your mind, in your mouth, and in your manner. And then we hear words like, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of the sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. For his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law does he meditate, and he shall be like a tree planted by rivers. There's resulting stability from the word. I say all that to tell you that the number one thing that I'm called to do as a pastor is to encourage you through the word of God. To encourage you through scriptures to fulfill the mission, to, get, to bring God glory and fulfill the, the commission or the mission, which is to make disciples. And you do all of that through the preaching and teaching of the Word of God. And so in, in Acts 20, we're going to hear an awesome story, interesting story, kind of humorous story, but not if you would have been there, uh, of Eutychus falling from the third story and dying. But that's not the main theme of the passage. The main theme of the passage is Christ exalting encouragement through the preaching of the Word. That's how you really, truly encourage people. It's through the preaching, it's through the proclamation and teaching of the Word of God that we're called to hide in our hearts. To know that it's the lamp into our feet, light into our path. To know that the only success we can ever have truly in life is through the Word. And to know that we are called by God to meditate in it day and night so that we've got resulting stability in life. Without the Word, there is no stability. Your journey began because God arrested your attention through His Word. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the Word. Not only are you saved through the hearing of the Gospel through the Word, but you're also called, and it's essential folks, listen to me, it's essential for growth to have the Word of God. So, with that thought in mind, we're going to read Acts 20, verses 1 through 16, and notice how that it kind of forms an inclusio between verses 1 and all the way down to verse 12 where it's bracketed for us, parenthetically, with that phrase, encouragement. So encouragement is very important. Listen to the word. Acts 20, verse 1. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much, see it? He came to Greece. There he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Sopater the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him. And of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, 
and Gaius of Derby and Timothy and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. These went on ahead and were waiting for him, for us, at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. And in five days we came to them at Troas where we stayed for seven days. So the providential working of the Lord God Almighty shuts the door going to Syria. Why? Because of plot to Paul's death. Thus it put him back at Macedonia. That's not an accident. Now beginning in verse 7. On the first day of the week when we gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them. Intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him. This is very Elisha, Elijah like. And taking him in his arms said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak, and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. Same word in the Greek that we've been seeing. Verse 13, But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Assos, intending to make intending to take Paul aboard there, for so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. So in other words, Paul doesn't want to get on the ship. He wants to go by foot. And when he, had, when he met us in Assos, we took him on board and went to Mytilina. And sailing from there, we came to the following day opposite Chios. The next day, we touched at Samos, and the day after that, we went to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus. So that he might not have to spend time in Asia. For he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Well, when you read through there, most of us are thinking, that's a lot of insignificant info, right? You would make a huge, egregious mistake if you think that this passage is not packed full of gospel gems. Wonderful theology is given for us. In chapter 20, verses 1 through 16, it is also the launching pad for the most incredible section of Scripture to hear pastoral understanding from the heart of the Apostle Paul. That's going to begin in verse 17 when he calls the elders together. He's going to give the the most awesome Pauline character and theology that you've ever heard when it comes to church life. So we're going to get ready for that, and I promise you I can't preach that section in one sermon like I'm doing 1 through 16 on this one. It will not happen. Did you know that Luke begins volume 1 of a two-volume series? Luke is volume. Acts is volume. Now notice what he says. Don't turn back. Inasmuch as as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that that have been accomplished among us, Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. And here's what Luke said. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that have been taught. Now, folks, I I read that to help you understand that history is important. Because many people will say, 
Well, the Bible is just a bunch of fables written by a bunch of men on their own instrumentality. Well, we beg to differ. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness. We believe this is the inerrant, infallible Word of the living God. Its doctrines are holy, its precepts are binding, its historics are true, and its decisions are changeless. This is what we believe about it. And notice how Luke pounds this. This is an accurate account of historical record. 100% truth. And that's important as you begin to look into verse 20. Because you see so many names. You see so many places. You see events transpiring. And there's a reason that Luke is giving this. This is incredible insight. So history is important. Precise details are important. Why? Because the veracity of the Christian faith is at stake. Either it's all true or none of it's true. And we believe that it's the word of the living God. So as you look into this precise account, think about the specific names that are listed here and what is taking place. It gives you the strong sense of the historicity of the word of God. So, with that said, it's important to the history of the church and the ministry of the church to hear what God says through his word and for us to apply it to our lives. So first, we kind of hear of Paul's itinerary. He is uh, traveling from Ephesus to Macedonia. We're reminded that he leaves because of a disturbance. It's a riot that takes place in Ephesus, right? You remember the story? We, we see how that Paul believes that God is through with him at that moment to leave Ephesus because of this societal riot. Why? Because everybody's sails are down from the temple of Artemis because the gospel is upsetting the entire, entire community. Artemis and Diana, same place. They're taking a back seat and they're encouraged to leave that area. And the Bible explains that Paul will use his pastoral heart to encourage those disciples and to build them up. And I have no doubt that the, the encouragement was the same encouragement that he gives in Acts 14, verse 21. You know, in, in America, we like to say, well, if you're saved, it's pie in the sky by and by. And everything's just smooth sailing. But Paul would remind us in his words of encouragement in Acts 14, and I believe it's the same encouragement going on here, that through many tribulations we must come through before we go to glory. It's through many tribulations that we will see the kingdom of the Lord. So I think the number one lesson that Paul is encouraging his people with is through the word he's encouraging them to persevere. Isn't it so easy to quit and stop and get frustrated? But Paul is encouraging them to persevere. Paul leaves for Macedonia and incidentally what happened in Macedonia? There was also a riot. Isn't that interesting? He's leaving one riot and he's going back to encourage the churches, and he goes back to an area of Macedonia. And that is made up of three cities that we've already studied in the book of Acts. Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea. And two of those cities, major riots because the gospel of Jesus Christ was preached. So, so much for a trouble-free labor when it comes to the gospel. You don't see that there. Paul returns to a region where he experienced much tribulation for the cause of of Christ, And in writing to the Philippians in general, Paul in the first chapter will talk about how through many difficulties, the gospel expanded in the area of Philippi. Paul not only had a pastor's heart, but he was incredibly courageous. 
Just think about this. You would think a place that runs you out of the town and persecutes you for the gospel is not the town you want to go back to. But Paul knew full well that the gospel was at stake in those churches that he had planted in Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea. And he went back to encourage. He went right back into the middle of an area that had run him out of town because of the gospel. Those churches were birthed in the crucible of persecution. We forget that, don't we? That churches throughout this world, in the embryonic stages of the early church, they, they came into existence through persecution. And they thrived and survived through persecution. The literal rendering here is that Paul gave them much word. He gave much word to the believers. One translation says, with large exhortations. So Paul is reconnecting with these areas of churches that he's planted. And what did he give them? He gave them the word. He gave them encouragement. And why did Paul give them the word? Because that is the most important thing that Paul could have ever done for those people. It's to give them the word of God. Listen to the words of John Stott in response to this verse. I love this. He said, it is vital... It is a vital ministry in establishing Christian disciples and the principal means of its exercise is literally much word. Nothing encourages and strengthens the people of God like the living and powerful word of God. And I would say to you that we've preached 20 chapters in Acts, correct? Now you haven't been here for all of them. If, I, if you have, I'm going to give you a, a pen you can put on your coat, right? We used to do that in Sunday school, right? But the fact is... Many of you, if you missed a Sunday morning, you've picked it up on your phone or you listen to it traveling or you get a CD, and I know that. But let me just give you some personal understanding of what I have gotten through this. I have been encouraged more than ever of how important the Word of God is. That we teach it, we proclaim it, we preach it, and we do not compromise. And how in our own life, in my own life, it's re-strengthened me again and again that the number one priority of FBCO must be the teaching and the preaching of the Word of God. Folks, you can't read through Acts, verses, chapters 1 through 20, without coming away with an appreciation of how important it is to teach and proclaim the Word of God. So Paul spends three months in this area, and he's been committed to the preaching of the Word and most scholars believe he's there between 55 and 56 A.D. or 56 to 57, which is important. Why? Because this is early on in the church's history. During this period, he will make a quick trip over to Corinth. And, you know, he talks about a painful visit. You know, here's a, a guy, a fellow who planted the church and he's going back to Corinth. And he calls it a painful visit in, chapter, in 2 Corinthians 2. Why? Because the church was challenging his apostleship. And Paul says this is a difficult time in his life. And so Paul prepares to head to Syria. He learns of a plot that Jews are going to be there to kill him. What better way? I mean, if you're on a boat and they know you're on that boat and you've got this harbor you're coming to, you're caught. It's not a good idea to be on a ship coming to a, a port knowing full well that Paul's on there and they're trying to kill him. So he learns of it. And I think if you would have gone into any of the local post offices in any of these geographical regions, guess whose mugshot would have been on the wall? But why? Because Paul was a wanted man. But this ends up being providential to put Paul in Macedonia 
for this particular time. Again, scholars believe that Paul probably wrote the book of Romans while he was in this place in Macedonia. So Paul's companions are sent ahead and they're waiting for him in Troas. Now check this out. In verses 4 and 5, you've got all these names. And you were just hoping I was going to trip over some of them, right? But I practice them. And I listen to them. And I'm thinking, okay, let's get this diphthong right. Let's get all this right. I'm going to mess them up and so are you. But the fact is, the names are important. He tells of Sopater from Berea who, and mentions his father. He speaks... Paul's going to talk about him in Romans 16. So you have to track the names and think about it. Aristarchus is going to be mentioned back. He was mentioned back in chapter 19 and again here. And Secundus, they're both in Thessalonica. You've got Gaius from Derbe. Then we, of course, have Timothy. We have Tychicus, who is mentioned in Ephesians 6, 21 through 22. We have Trophimus, who is mentioned again in Acts 21. Tychicus and Trophimus are both from Asia. And we also think about geographically that God is trying to say something to us. We've got representatives from all these various ages, uh, areas. We've got people who are being saved from among the nations. Are y'all getting this? And Paul has gone into these geographical areas and he's preached the gospel of Jesus Christ and people have gotten saved. And the people that have gotten saved, many of them have been called and understand their calling. And they've connected themselves with Paul. Why? Because it's not a one-man show. And it's not a one-man show at this church. Right? It's, uh, there's a team focus of what's going on. So think about this. Clearly, these are men who were the fruit of Paul's ministry. He goes into an area. He proclaims the gospel that he's not ashamed of. It's the power of God and the salvation to those who believe. And they hear the word of God. They're convicted of their sin. They trust Christ only for salvation. They are saved. And now they become agents of Paul's mission. Whereas they were the fruit of the ministry, now they're agents of the mission. And the kingdom comes as the gospel is preached in power. Men and women's lives are changed and they become the fruit of the mission. And then in due time, they end up, maybe some later than others, some sooner than others, they become the very agents of the mission. Their lives are transformed by the king, and they join the mission to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. All right, take your right hand and hit yourself in this side of the face, right? Does that sound like what we ought to be doing as a church? Now, don't look at me so spiritual. If you've been transformed by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, then you're the fruit of the ministry. But you're not called by God to sit on your blessed assurance once you're the fruit of the ministry. You're called by God to be an agent of the mission. There is no such thing in the Word of God as someone getting transformed by Christ and being saved to sit. Or saved to play bingo. Or saved to go watch the leaves turn up north. That, those things are fine, folks. But that's not your calling. That's not your mission. Your mission is to be an agent of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The mission is to engage in the things of the Lord It just rattles my mind how folks can sit in church for year after year after year after year and never serve God and never engage into the mission. I've got news for you, church, FBCO. If you never have a thought of engaging in the mission, then I doubt very seriously you've ever been captured by the master. It's quiet in here. I'm just telling you, folks, that's foreign to the New Testament. And how did I start the sermon off? I set you up. Your word have I stored in my heart. Really? 
Your word is a lamp unto my feet, light unto my path. Really? Right? You, you see where I'm headed with this. If you say you have the word in you, in due time you will become an agent of the mission if you are truly saved. This team worked together for the mission, did they not? We all need a long-range vision. Folks, what's going to happen at FBCO when your journey is over? I, I, I shudder to think about what's going to take place with some of our Ron Garrisons and Ron Youngs and, and uh, some of these guys, Lonnie back there. What, what's going to happen when they're in glory? What's going to happen to FBCO when some of our gray heads that have supported and served in this church, and now we look around and it's like pulling teeth to get you to do anything at times. I'm not on all of you. I'm kind of preaching to the choir for some of you, but for some of you, I'm not, right? What's going to happen in that legacy? Oh, it's interesting. That in, Let me move on, right? In verse 6, Paul's going to observe the day of unleavened bread. While in Philippi. Does anybody find this interesting? Here he is celebrating a Jewish feast. And he's a believer. I would say to you that he's celebrating the Old Testament in feast. The Old Testament feast in light of his Christian heritage. He has gotten saved by grace through faith. He goes back and he celebrates this. And more than likely I know Paul. This is a launching pad. That by all means he may win some. He's participating in the feast of unleavened bread. So that he will have an opportunity to talk about the bread of life, right? And that being the Lord Jesus Christ. So note this. Interesting shift in verse 7. Now we're going to have some fun. Y'all ready? I don't have a watch. What time is it up there? 11.17. I forget about that. Let's keep going. All right. (laughs) Verse 7. This is pretty good. There's a shift. And the Bible says on the first day of the week. What? Does Luke say that just simply because he wants you to know what day it is? Oh, church, I think he's wanting to say something about the first day of the week. Don't y'all? I don't think he's just telling you this happened on February, what's today, 17th? I don't, I don't think he's trying to tell you that just a date, to tell you a date or a day. I think he's underscoring something that is absolutely crucial about the early church. It dedicated the first day of the week as a day of worship. The first day of the week, by the end of the apostolic era, had already become designated as the Lord's Day. We know this. Not only uh, biblical understanding, but extra-biblical teachings show us how the early church was gathering on what they called the Lord's Day. It's the day that belonged to the Lord. And you say, where do you get that from? Well, the expression is given in Revelation 1.10, and it's called, John is said to have seen a vision from the Lord on the Lord's Day. If you track through the Bible of how many things took place on Sunday, it will boggle your mind. Jesus called all the disciples on Sunday. He resurrected. That's the big one, right? John was uh, on the Isle of Patmos, led by the Spirit, day of uh, Lord's Day. Pentecost took place. Lord's Day. Are y'all tracking with me? So the expression Lord's Day comes to us from Revelation 1.10. There's only one parallel structure in the Bible, that compares to Lord's Day. And guess what that's called? The Lord's... We do it so unfrequently, you don't even know what it's called, right? It's the Lord's Supper. So, the supper that belongs to the Lord is exclusively His, and the... Oh, we had one person who admitted it. 
right? The day that belongs to the Lord. This Greek expression is important. Lord's day, Lord's supper. And that's found in 1 Corinthians 11. It's the supper that belongs uniquely to the Lord. It's the day that belongs uniquely to the Lord. The first day of the week will become the Christian's special day of worship. It's the day of Christ-centered resurrection Sabbath. How do you like that for bringing back the Old Testament? That's what it is. Christ-centered resurrection Sabbath. They observed the ordinances on this day. They gathered to hear the word. They gathered to fellowship with one another. It is to them a special day. We must, in our day, admit that it's not such a special day anymore. Is that not true? It's become quite sloppy when it comes at times to our observance of what the Bible calls the Lord's day. In that day, many of them worked during the day. Probably all day. Why? Because you could only work in the daylight. Imagine that. You could only work in the daylight. For the most part. And so they worked all day. And most people probably came in at say 5 o'clock. And most of the time the church services were at night. I'd have no problem going to 5 o'clock or 6 o'clock every Sunday night. If all you rascals would come back. But your day is planned. And most of your day is planned not thinking at all. About it being the Lord's day. Let's be honest. I mean, can I be honest with you? That's exactly the way that we treat it. So, they gather on the first day of the week in the evening. And Paul preaches a very long sermon. If I was ever going to proof text something, it would be this. Y'all know what proof testing means? Am I still on? Do y'all know what it means to proof text? That means you have some doctrine that you think is right. Or some belief. And you run over and find this one verse in the Bible to say, Oh! You see what the Bible says? That's called proof texting. Because most of the time, you've forgotten the context of what it was said and why it was said. And so, it's very easy to eisegete, which means to make it mean what you want it to mean, instead of exegete, which means to lift out what it really means. But if I was ever going to have a proof text, it would be this one for long sermons, right? I mean, Paul preached a very long sermon. He preached, and the emphasis is upon long sermons sermon, which, which is in comparison to him, Eutychus, having sleep that he's fighting long against. You get the picture? You know you get the picture because you sleep during the sermons, right? But that's what's happening in the, the grammar is ex- expressly strong. Uh, it is emphasizing a prolonged sermon. You know, I'll be preaching along and I'll say, and finally, and you're like, But what if you heard this, and finally, and finally, and finally, and finally, that's really what happened, right? He's prolonging that sermon. And boy, what application do I have here? To midnight! Even if he started at five, that's a seven-hour prolonging of a sermon. So if I was going to use it as a proof text, I would say to you, don't ever complain. Right? Don't ever complain. Paul's heart is full. That's, doesn't it capture your mind to think about the church of the Lord Jesus? Probably not 25 years from the time that Jesus stood fresh from the trauma of the grave. Oh, they witnessed the resurrected king. Saw him visibly with their eyes. A lot of them. 
Many of them could at this point have seen him. And they're studying the word. They're up in the third story in a room. And they're gathered together to serve, to hear the word, to fellowship together. To, and, and there's a prolonged sermon. And he's preaching. He goes longer and longer and longer. And it's midnight. Now, what do we know about this? Y'all having fun? Do they have electricity? What? No. No, there's no electricity. You know, not at all. Uh, it's, uh, it's by lamp light or torch light. Now get the picture. There's no forced air in that building for you Baptists. I mean, you'll run over to the thermostat and start... Man, if the air would have been right at First Baptist Church, we could have had revival this morning, right? That was the problem. But look, no forced air. They... I mean, just think about the atmosphere. It was conducive for what? Yeah. You know, have a lot of light in there. Perhaps people have worked all day, and they're coming, and there's a prolonged sermon, and the room is full of low light. Uh, it has low light and radiant heat. You've got all those bodies in there, and perhaps a lot of people are fanning, especially the older people, right? They're fanning away. And it's roasting in there. The story is told how Spurgeon noticed as he was preaching that people in the balcony were falling asleep. And uh, he asked his deacons to take out the windows. Reason being, they had been painted shut. We're all familiar with that at some point. And he wanted them to replace the windows with ones that would actually open up. He wanted to get some air into the balcony. The deacons refused, of course, because, well, deacons are deacons. No offense to you guys, but that's usually the case. Uh, now, I've only been in this area for two and a half years, but in the South, they'd have been just like this, right? Uh, no offense, generally speaking. The next Lord's Day, the congregation gathers, and guess what's happened? The windows are broken out. Spurgeon never took credit for it. But everybody in the church knew that he walked by with that walking stick he had and knocked them out. Why did he do this? Because ultimately, we really do want you to be comfortable as much as possible before the Word of God grips your heart and makes you very uncomfortable. And there's nothing wrong with saying, well, let's make the atmosphere as, as comfortable as possible. Because I've been preaching to you right now and I've already watched some of your eyes and you've already slept on me a few minutes. So we try our best to make it comfortable. Atmosphere. So think about this. This is not the ideal. This is, not, this is less than the ideal situation. And enter this young man seated at the windowsill. The room was packed and... Eutychus probably wanted to get a little bit of fresh air. So he is sitting on the windowsill. And his name is Eutychus. And by the way, it means lucky one or fortunate one. Ha! <laughs> Isn't that funny? I think after this, I changed my name. Right? But that's what his name means. And he's identified in the Greek, particularly, and, and most importantly, he's probably between the ages of 8 and 14. That's how old Eutychus is. And he's seated on the window of the balcony, on the third story, with the whole group up there. And the Bible tells us, in a present participle form, that he's sinking into a deep sleep. I.e., many of you on Sunday morning. And the Bible says that Paul just keeps on preaching, preaching, preaching. And at this point, Luke uses the aorist tense in the Greek, which means this. Whereas he was fighting off the sleep, now sleep comes and just actually settles down on top of him, all at one moment, he's just gone. He's asleep. The picture is vivid. 
in the grammar, but it's also vivid in our own experience because we've been there and we've watched others get there. Right? I wish I could tell you all the stories of what I've seen since I've been at this church about some of you slugs. Right? It's, it's hardly ever the women. It's most of the time the men. Uh, the funniest thing that Natalie, Natalie and I have ever witnessed was literally in my first church I pastored John and Mae Douglas. They love Christ. They're with the Lord now, both of them. But their heads would literally prop on one another. <laughs> and they would sleep through the whole sermon. And every Sunday morning, my first little church of three years, I'd walk out the door leaving. I'd shake Mr. John Douglas's hand. He'd say, Preacher, that was a great sermon. And I'm like, you lying dog. You know full well. You haven't heard a word I said. The stories. But I, I would say to you that the, the funniest ones are when somebody falls asleep and begins to snore. You, I mean, it's just unbelievable. And some of you ladies have no mercy on your husband. You just want them to be embarrassed because you would think that you would nudge them or something as they start, look, show a little bit of mercy. I mean, they're embarrassing themselves, right? We know it's the truth. Uh, when they commence to snoring, you need to have a little mercy on them. You need to wake them up, nudge them. But do you think Paul was concentrated on Eutychus? No. I think Paul was concentrated with a full heart on preaching the word. And all of a sudden, the Bible says that he falls from the third story. And the Bible explicitly says that he dies. Perhaps it's like we do sometimes. We've fallen off to sleep and you have one of those jerks. And he jerked and he fell from the third story. Now, we think it's humorous because we know the end of the story. But just imagine if you would have been part of that congregation and he would have been your 8 to 14-year-old. Just think about how terror-struck they had to be when this took place. It wasn't funny in that day, right? Now, I could think about a few kids that would do something like that. Owen Stryker would be one of them. I think Nathan Burden would probably be up there. Uh, but, and, and you know what? They would, they'd get in a lot of trouble if they fell that far, too. From the ground and their mom and dad, right? If they survived, it would be the case. But just think about that. Falling uh, while the preaching service is going on. Now, I've had people pass out a few times, and I don't think it was necessary to link the sermon, but it's happened. Paul does something very Elisha-like. He goes over to him, lays over him, takes him in his arms, and what an awesome miracle. God gives the boy life. It's unprecedented. It's, a, it's, it's an amazing miracle. But it, do you read the rest of the, the narrative? What does Paul do? They go right back upstairs, break bread, and he starts conversing again. So it's like, let's have a pause in the sermon. Kid falls, dies, resurrects him, gets back to the sermon. That's exactly what's going on here in the text. So, don't you love Luke's sur uh, summary? And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. In other words, they were greatly comforted. Now, uh, for the application of the sermon. If, if I was going to use anything about falling asleep with Eutychus, I would say, you know, folks, we got coffee out there. I mean, I don't care if you bring coffee in here. I thought Michael would have a great illustration because he was holding a coffee cup this morning, but it was really water. But still... Uh, God has given you caffeine to stimulate your brain. Use it. Use it. Bring it into the church and drink it. That will help stimulate your brain. 
And here's the application. Don't fall asleep in church. It may be hazardous to your health. Now, notice verse 13 with Paul. He, uh, he, he doesn't want to get on the ship. He, he doesn't do that. He actually walks. We know that. And uh, Chios is actually the birthplace of Homer, for some of you historians. And Samos is the birthplace of Pythagoras. In verse 16, they decide to set sail past Ephesus. Paul is in a hurry to get to Jerusalem to celebrate Pentecost. And again, this passage sets up for us the richest Pauline section in the entire Bible to see his pastoral heart. It ends up being Paul's farewell sermon to these people, these elders of Ephesus. We're going to get to look at that. It's loaded with great theology. Now, application. Do you see the importance of the Lord's Day here? Everybody clear on that one? There's the importance of gathering together to hear the word of the Lord, to fellowship with one another, to be encouraged. Uh, Acts, uh, Hebrews 10, 25 says, Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some, but exhort one another as much the more you see the day approaching. There's the encouragement for us to worship together the King. There should be a delight and a joy to be with the people of God. That's pretty sorry. Response. From the very day that Christ saved me, I have always savored what it meant to worship with God's people. You say, well, preacher, you're just different. I wasn't always preaching. I grew up as a kid. I got saved when I was nine years old. And I always, my mom and dad didn't have to beg me to go to church. They didn't have to twist my arm. I cannot remember a day when I thought to myself, you know what, I'd just rather hang out and do something else. I'm telling you, folks, I would rather be with God's people than anywhere this world, anything this world has to offer. That's just me. I savor being with the people of God, hearing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs that lift up melody in our hearts to the Lord and gathering around for worship. It had to be written somewhere, I thought, that when you got saved, you went to church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, without exception, right? And if they threw in a day of visitation, you came to that one too. That was just what we thought was true, and I didn't mind that whatsoever. We share the same Lord, folks. We share the same spirit and the same faith. I think people gathered that day because they wanted to gather those days. They wanted to hear the word. They desired to, to fellowship with one another and worship the king. They could say with the psalmist, I was glad when they said, let us go into the house of the Lord. We live in an oppressive world, folks, that seeks to drag us down. God has given you a people and a place like a weekly refuge and oasis for your soul. You ought to take advantage of it. You ought to be in the house of the Lord. Now think about that. There was an article that Natalie shot to me this week when I was sitting in my office. And the article was about what are we doing as parents when it comes to our children and priorities when it comes to church. Folks, I'm telling you, the reason there's such a huge fall off in our world with young people coming to church is because parents don't love church. You can, mark, you can say anything you want to say, but we've taught them that traveling to play sports and everything else supersedes the Lord's day. I beg to differ with you. I know this is not popular preaching, but I'm telling you, there's the law of the harvest that comes true. Whatsoever a man sows, and if you sow 
that church is not a priority in your life, that's the reaping you're going to get with your children. I'm just telling you, folks, I love you enough to tell you the truth, and I'm not going to beat around the bush. The reason we're in the shape we're in in our country is because whatever we've fostered to our children, we haven't fostered a love for the king, a love for gathering together with the people of God, a love for hearing the word, a love for singing. We don't have it anymore, not like we used to. We can change that. You know what? I'm not saying you shouldn't play sports. That's not what I'm saying. You know what I mean by this. I'm talking about priority. And nothing should supersede our relationship with the king. Not one thing. No matter who you are. Nothing should supersede that. And all God's people said, oh me? Or amen. Right? Alright, we must also see the importance of the Lord's Supper. You ever notice something? There's a trend in Acts. Every time they met, they partook of the Lord's Supper. And I believe that. I believe that when the church came together on the first day of the week, they always partook of the Lord's Supper. Now, as Baptists, we've got to get our quota in, and that's four times a year. Here's what I'm suggesting as your pastor. We're going to change that. I want us to move to at least doing it once a month. You know why? Because we're upholding the powerful gospel of Jesus Christ because of the life that He lived without sin, the blood that was shed on Calvary. And the fact of the matter is, we do this, Jesus said, as often as you do this, do it in remembrance of me. I think it will heighten our awareness of our own sinfulness before the Lord. It will heighten our awareness of togetherness as a church. And so, next Sunday night, 24th, we'll partake of the Lord's Supper, and at least once a month after that. Sometimes on Sunday mornings, most of the time on Sunday nights. So I tell you that, we need to think about the importance of the Lord's Supper. We also see the importance of the ministering of the Word of God. Every time they gathered, the Word of God was taught. It was building up the church. It was equipping them theologically to persevere. And Paul had a goal. His goal wasn't that he would become a monument, right? The goal wasn't that we can put your name on a plaque in the hallway of the church. That's not the goal. The ultimate goal is that we leave behind a legacy of others who are serving the king. Are y'all getting this? And Paul knew this. Just look at the names of those. In 20 or 30 years, we'll all, most of us will be gone. Many of us will be gone from here. What kind of legacy are we leaving for the next generation? We don't have to have a plaque on the wall to remind us of who we are. We want to leave a legacy of delighting in hearing and applying the Word of God to our lives. That's what Paul labored in. Hearing and applying the Word. Let's commit ourselves to building one another up with encouragement through the Word of God. Amen. I told you that the sermon wasn't all about Eutychus, even though that's a good story, isn't it? Thank the Lord that God raised him from the dead. Because some of you would be on me if not. You say, look what happened, preacher, when you preach long sermons. Well, it ended well, didn't it? All right, church family. Let's pray. Father, I, I just want to thank you for how powerful your word is. And Lord, uh, God, help us as a church to think about the importance of the Lord's Day, the Lord's Supper, and how important it is to gather to hear your word. And I know there are a lot of different avenues of hearing the word today radio or tapes or cell phones but Lord there's nothing like gathering together with the people of God we're a body and your word tells us that 
We can't very well encourage one another if we're not coming. God, help this be an equipping center uh, on Sunday mornings and Sunday nights and Wednesday nights. Let it be the huddle that we need to learn the plays so that we can go out during the week and run the plays so that we can live the Christian life. God, help us. Father, if there's one soul under the sound of my voice that's lost, Lord, your gospel can change souls. It transforms lives. It has the power to take something that is dead and make it alive. And Father, would you take a dead heart today made of stone and would you put in a heart of flesh? Lord, if they would turn to you only for salvation. Repent of their sins. It's a turning. It's a a movement from unbelief to belief in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Father, would you do that today? And Lord, again, help our church not to be uh, depicted by the world standards. But Lord, to be a church of the New Testament and the Old Testament. Lord, help us be a 21st century church that looks like the first century church. Lord, help us in that regard. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.